0: Our scripture reading for this morning's sermon comes from the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 9 through 14. If you have your Bibles with you, or if you have your mobile app, whatever you use for reading your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verses 9 to 14. This morning I'll be reading from the NIV, Colossians chapter 1, verse of sins amen this is god's word well it's hard to believe that we're already nearing the end of 2021 but i think many of us will still agree that 2020 was an unusually challenging year for several reasons one of the many sad events from 2020 was the death of chadwick bozeman Chadwick Boseman you're not familiar with him he's a beloved actor who played roles like Jackie Robinson and Thurgood Marshall but I think for many of us the first character that will probably come to mind if we think of Chadwick Boseman is King T'Challa from the Marvel Cinematic Universe one distinct memory I have when Black Panther the movie first came out was a segment that Chadwick Boseman did with Jimmy Fallon on the Tonight Show fans were invited to come into a room, kind of a closed-off room, and share appreciation, words of appreciation, to a life-size poster of King T'Challa that was hanging on the wall. So they would be speaking to this poster and talking to this poster about how much they appreciated him or the movie. And These fans were told that their remarks would be recorded, video recorded, and then shown to Chadwick Boseman himself later on. But what they didn't know was that Chadwick Bozeman was actually standing behind the curtain. He was standing behind the poster, listening to these fans speak. And after a minute or so, he would come out and surprise them. Most of them were shocked, which is very understandable. But their shock soon gave way to these huge smiles and handshakes and, and even hugs. But what really surprised me as I was watching this segment on YouTube was how some of these fans addressed Chadwick Boseman as my king, my king, as they were talking to him. To them, Chadwick Bozeman wasn't all that different from the character he played. He exuded this strength and dignity, and yet also kindness and humility and grace. Now clearly these folks were joking when they called him my king, my king, but I actually got the sense that they wouldn't have minded having him as their leader in real life you know this was confirmed when i saw a bunch of tributes on twitter shortly after Chadwick Bozeman passed away for example ava duvernay the director of films like selma and when they see us on netflix wrote may you have a beautiful return king we will miss you so ilan omar the, the congresswoman from minnesota similarly expressed Death is a great thief. Farewell, king. Now these are just two of many tweets that I saw that said, Rest in power, my king, or something to that effect. And again, this made me wonder if even for those of us who've grown up and live in democratic societies, do we have this innate desire for a noble king who we know would protect his people and love us even at the cost of his own life today we continue our short teaching series during this advent season called jesus our mediator now over the past two sundays we've considered how jesus fulfills his role as our mediator through his ministry as the true prophet and as the true priest this morning we're going to reflect on his ministry as our king The scriptures that we heard from this morning's Advent reading addresses this theme of Jesus as our true king. And we'll be looking at a few more passages together, but the text today we read from Colossians chapter 1 is going to serve as our home base. I want to encourage us to keep it open and keep it in front of us. I won't be showing the scripture from that passage on the screen. I'll be showing the others, but please keep Colossians chapter 1 open in front of you because we'll be referring to it. A few times. And as we do, we're going to consider three themes this morning from Colossians chapter 1. The first is living for another. The second is two distinct reigns, R E I G N S, two distinct reigns. And third and last will be our good king. Living for another, two distinct reigns and our good king. Let's begin with living for another. Now, when we look at the first few verses of our passage, and again, I hope you have it open in front of you, we'll see Paul sharing about how he prays for these Colossian believers. If you look with me at verse 9, he says in verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Now those first two words in the beginning of verse 10, those two words are crucial. They reveal Paul's heart for these Colossian Christians. He's praying for them so that they'd live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. In fact, if you keep looking at our passage, we'll see he goes one step further and he lists no less than four ways that these Colossian Christians can do this. If you look at the middle of verse 10, the Colossian believers can live worthy of the Lord by bearing fruit in every good work, by growing in the knowledge of God, By being strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might so they can have great endurance and patience and by giving joyful thanks to the Father. Four ways that these Colossians and four ways that you and I can live worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. This is Paul's prayer. Now let me pause here for a moment and just say this is a beautiful prayer really it's a model for how you and i can pray for one another can you imagine with me just for a minute someone else praying for you with these words lord i pray for my fellow sisters and brothers in christ here at rcc that you'd fill them with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that They would live worthy lives and please you in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might so that they would have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to you as our loving Heavenly Father. What might happen if each of us here, each of us watching right now, devoted just a few minutes each day, every day this week, to praying these words from our passage for our church? What might happen if our leaders prayed like this for the congregation and vice versa? Could it be possible that we would begin to experience a deeper love for one another and a deeper love for our Lord if we prayed in this way? I'm going off at a tangent here, but it's an important one. But the more relevant point, for our purposes this morning at least, is that God cares deeply about how we live. God cares deeply about how we live. Why else would Paul pray in verse 10 that these Colossians would live worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way? As Christians, you and I don't get to follow Jesus just to receive his benefits while we keep living however we want. That's not how it works. Salvation is never meant to be spiritual fire insurance to keep us out of hell. The way we live matters. Not so much to earn our salvation, but rather to confirm that our salvation is in fact the real thing. If we truly want to receive Christ, we must be willing to take him not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord and King. Paul emphasizes this in the very next chapter when he writes in Colossians chapter 2. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him rooted and built up in him strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness when we follow jesus we're making the commitment to continue living in him that's all paul puts in there in verse six we're submitting ourselves under his authority if he really is our king then jesus has every right to ask even demand our loyalty and our obedience as his people. The scriptures we heard in this morning's Advent readings and even in our passage today from Colossians chapter 1, they leave no room for doubt. Jesus is the king. We see this in verse 13 from our text. If we received Christ through faith, then God has brought us into the kingdom of the Son of God he loves that takes us to our next theme for this morning what i would call two distinct reigns two distinct reigns in verse 13 if you look there paul describes christians as those who've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves Now there he seems to be saying that there are at least two distinct dominions or kingdoms. There's on the one hand the dominion of darkness, but then there's also the kingdom of his beloved son. Two kingdoms, as it were. But then we must ask, does that mean that there exists a realm where Jesus doesn't rule as king? Or if I ask this question differently, does Jesus' kingdom, does the kingdom of the sun, does Jesus' kingdom have borders? It might seem so if Christians have been rescued from the ben, dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the sun. There seems to have been a crossing of the border, as it were. And if Jesus' kingdom has boundaries, perhaps that might explain all the sadness and all the pain and injustice and suffering and sickness and death that we see all around us? That would evidently all be part of the kingdom of darkness, right? But if that's true, if we have these two kingdoms that are at war against each other, then wouldn't it also be possible for the kingdom of darkness to attack possibly even conquer or even destroy jesus's kingdom is this a war between two kingdoms that have equal power and might and if so what would that mean for us now i hope these questions are making some of us here too nervous they are strictly imaginary imaginary strictly imaginary because if we know our bible well then we'd also know that there is no realm in this entire universe where god does not reign supreme and i could cite passage after passage that affirms this glorious and comforting reality but i'll limit myself to just two in psalm 47 we find this call to worship sing praises to god sing praises Sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. He is seated on his holy throne. We also find several passages in the Old Testament that look forward to Jesus' universal reign as the Messiah. And one that's especially relevant during the season of Advent comes from the book of Isaiah. From that time on and forever. Again, these are just two passages. I could cite so many more, but the Bible is clear that as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son, reigns with the Father and with the Spirit over all of creation. He reigns, He rules. This is what some theologians from especially the Reformed tradition describe as Jesus' essential reign. Jesus' essential reign is his absolute and supreme power over everything and over everyone in heaven and on earth. But having said this, Jesus also rules over his people in a unique and special way. And theologians refer to this as his mediatorial reign. Now that may sound like a fancy word, but many of us probably notice that the word mediator is in it. Jesus' mediatorial reign is his authority and rule over the church and over all those who truly belong to him through saving faith. And this is what Paul is talking about in verse 13 of our passage from Colossians when he refers to believers as those who've been brought into the kingdom of the Son. Guy Waters, a New Testament scholar, offers this helpful explanation. He writes, In acknowledging Jesus' essential reign, believers particularly confess Jesus with the Father and the Holy Spirit to be God over all. In acknowledging Jesus' mediatorial reign, Believers particularly confess Jesus to be the risen Lord who purchased them by his own blood. Now just to be clear, when Paul says in verse 13 of our passage that we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness, he's not hinting in any way that that dominion of darkness is beyond Jesus' rule and authority. Because he reigns even now over the dominion of darkness. Our circumstances may say otherwise. I know it seems there's a lot of darkness all around us. We sense it every time we open our news app, right? It can feel overwhelming at times. And all we can do in those moments of near despair is to trust what the scriptures say. Jesus' essential reign includes even those parts in our world that seem utterly wicked and unjust. There will come a day when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess that Jesus is the true Lord and King. Every person, every created thing will one day submit to Jesus' essential reign. But not all will be able to find refuge under his mediatorial reign. That is a privilege that belongs only to genuine believers. As our mediator and as our true king, Jesus rules over all who have put their faith in him alone for their salvation. His rule over the church is his mediatorial reign. Jesus' mediatorial reign is also a spiritual reign. He doesn't rule over any physical geographic areas like Naperville or Illinois or North America. Jesus rules within the hearts and the lives of his people. That is the nature of his mediatorial reign. It is a spiritual reign. And so if we want to know whether or not we truly belong to him, perhaps this question might help. Am I willing to surrender all of myself to Jesus' rightful authority over me? Am I willing to surrender all of myself to Jesus' rightful authority over me? I love how the Westminster Shorter Catechism describes Christians, where Jesus' willing subjects, we willingly subject every part of our lives to him, our personal lives, Our family lives, our lives at work, our lives at school, our plans for the future, and even the parts of our lives that we may not think he's all that concerned about. What we like to do for fun, how we spend or save our money, or how we even take care of our physical health. All of that, all of who we are, comes under Jesus' rule when we become his willing subjects. Now, one of those two words are key. We become his willing subjects. That word implies that we gladly submit ourselves to Jesus' reign. We're not talking about a forced subjugation here. We're talking about a joyful surrender on our part. But I think we'll agree that can happen only if we're convinced that the king is a good and wise king. Again, I felt like I saw the slightest glimpse of this when people were addressing Chadwick Boseman as my king, my king, when they were paying tribute to him after he died. So here's the most important question of the day. Is Jesus a good king? Because, you know, it's one thing for us to know that he rules in both the essential and in the mediatorial sense, but what use is any of that if he isn't Good. The possibility that we might be subjects of a tyrant, that we might be subjects of a cruel king, that is a terrifying thought. And so that takes us to our third and final theme for this morning, our good king. Our good king. If we look at our passage again, we'll see that Paul leaves no room for doubt when he talks about how Christians are saved. If I can be even more specific, he leaves no room for doubt when it comes to who initiated our salvation. Look with me again at verse 12. In verse 12, Paul's praying that we live worthy of the Lord. And I'm going to read this very carefully here in the NIV. Giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Verse 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Now we know from other passages in the New Testament that Christians are saved when they repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. There is a human response side to every believer's salvation story. But Paul's focus here in our passage at least is the divine initiative side of every Christian salvation. And verse 12 says, if you are a believer, it's because God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people. You may not feel qualified at times. In fact, you may often feel like you've disqualified yourself. But if God has qualified you You're in. You're in, and you're in for good. you really think your actions can disqualify you from the God who's already qualified you? Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, If you're a Christian, it's because God has rescued you from the kingdom of darkness. We couldn't save ourselves. He had to step in and rescue us, and he did exactly that. He did it. And if you're a Christian, it's because God has brought you into the kingdom of his beloved Son. God qualified you, God rescued you, God brought you in. God is the one who did all of this. It's all God. You didn't earn your place. In the kingdom, And you couldn't buy it even if you had all the resources in the world. Now that's very different than how most privileged groups today offer membership, right? We usually can't gain access to those kinds of exclusive communities and the benefits they offer unless we have enough money and resources to buy our way in. And if we don't have that, our only hope is through someone we know who can hook us up. membership and access usually depend on how much you own and it depends on who you know how much you own and who you know but it's not like that with jesus kingdom he made this crystal clear in his late night conversation with nicodemus the pharisee in john chapter 3. It says jesus replied very truly i tell you no one can see the kingdom of God, unless they are born again. Guy Waters, who I quoted earlier, offers more thoughts on this. He says, The new birth is not affected by such things as birthright, genealogy, or human effort. One rather must be born of the Spirit to see or enter the kingdom. This new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. It is not in response to, or in anticipation of, or in conjunction with, human privilege or activity. Entrance into the kingdom is entirely a work of God. We can't buy our way into the kingdom. We can't earn our way into the kingdom where Jesus reigns. It's 100% God's doing. I hope that's clear from our passage today. But our passage also leaves no room for doubt about something else. Entering And belonging in the kingdom is a free gift for us. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't buy it. It's a free gift for us entering and belonging to the kingdom. But someone else had to pay the price to give us this privileged access. Let's look again at verse 13. It says, for he, the son has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I've mentioned before that when the word redemption is used in the Bible, it frequently carries the meaning of rescuing someone from slavery and often from certain death by paying a price in order to secure their freedom, to purchase their freedom. And in this sense, every genuine believer is redeemed. We've been rescued from our slavery to the penalty of sin, but our freedom came with a price. We couldn't pay it on our own, and so someone else had to come in and pay it for us. And that person who paid the price for our freedom, for our redemption, that person is none other than the king himself. Our redemption and our forgiveness is in Him. The life-giving hope that we celebrate each Christmas is that Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to come to earth and be born as a helpless infant so that one day after living in perfect obedience to the law, He would pay the price for our redemption by laying down His life and dying for us as our mediator. That's what we celebrate every Christmas. And my sisters and brothers, that's your king. This is our king. Why should we joyfully submit all of ourselves to his mediatorial reign? Why should we become his willing subjects? Well, it's because we know that our king is a good king. He doesn't just rule over us by his word and his spirit. He's our king who loved us so much that he was willing to die for us. You know, there's so much more I could say about Jesus as our true king, but let me close with this final thought. Jesus doesn't just rule over us as our good king. He also watches over you every single moment of every single day of your lives, and he will protect you from anything and from anyone that might threaten your right standing with him. That's what any good king would do, right? He doesn't just rule over his people, he protects them. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't experience pain or hardship as we live in this broken world, but it does mean that since Jesus is truly our king, and since He rules over us, His people, through His mediatorial reign, and since He rules even over this dark world through His essential reign, there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that can threaten your standing with God. My friends, as we continue this season of Advent, let's look to our mediator and king who redeemed us from our imprisonment to sin at the cost of his own life. Let's be comforted by the hope that he will protect us and he will defend us to the very end. John Calvin, the great theologian from the Reformation, offers this comforting word. He says, as we patiently pass through this life with its misery, hunger, cold, contempt, insults, and other troubles, let us be content with this one thing, that our king will never leave us destitute. He will provide for our needs until our warfare ends and we are called to triumph. My sisters and brothers, behold your king. Let's give to him the worship that he deserves and let's fully submit ourselves to him as his willing subjects. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to reflect on this theme of Jesus as our true king. Jesus, we gladly submit ourselves before you. We are utterly humbled and broken as we remember that you don't just rule over us, but you also went out of your way to redeem us from our bondage to sin. Thank you for making that possible through your willingness to be born as an infant child, through your perfect life, through your suffering, and through your death in our place. We're so thankful that we can worship you not only as our crucified Savior, but also as our risen Lord and King. We look forward to the day when all will submit to your essential reign. We're grateful that we have the unique privilege of finding shelter and comfort in your mediatorial reign through the shedding of your precious blood. We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen.